If you work with web applications or test web applications, I think this is going to be an interesting conversation with you. I've got my very first interview I'm going to present to you. Uh, this is Harry Percival. I really want to thank Harry for putting up with uh, the uh, the interesting quirks of being the first person to get interviewed by somebody. So uh, I hope I nail down and iron out some of the wrinkles that we've had through. But it, it was a fun conversation. So please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Harry Percival. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Aachen, and welcome to the Python Test Podcast. Today, I've got Harry Percival um, joining me on the test podcast. I've got um, I've I've been asked some questions about um, uh, testing and um, the using Python for testing the full stack, the full pyramid um, of testing, and in general, testing web frameworks. And I'm I'm not a web guy, so I asked Harry to come on. Um, so Harry's here. If um, I I learned about him because of his uh, work on the book Test Driven Development with Python. Um, so, is that what is the normal introduction for you, Harry? <laughs> what do you mean, like the normal introduction to me as a person? Hi, Brian. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, like um, so. Uh, you know, if somebody doesn't know you already, who are you? Yeah. All right. Fine. Um, well, I guess I'm a a relatively new programmer. I started in. Uh, I think in 2008, I quit my previous job, which was mostly kind of wrangling Excel spreadsheets um, and uh, PowerPoint. And, uh, and I, uh, I decided to go and do a new degree and do, do programming, which is something I loved as a kid. And as I thought, you know what, I, I don't want to be a management consultant, which is what I was at the time. That's a stupid job as far as I was concerned. Um, so uh, I went off to become a programmer and I did that. And I did a, a degree. And I got my first client and I, and, you know, sort of hacked away with Python and Django and got into lots of trouble. Uh, and then I got my first real job with, like, with an employer at a company which was called uh, Resolver Systems at the time. They made a, um, a sort of Pythonic Excel spreadsheet or a Pythonic version of Excel, if you like. Um, and, uh, uh, and they did sort of like full test-driven development. They did uh, extreme programming, XP, TDD. Uh, and they taught me that, and I went out there and decided to, to teach it to the world. Um, just initially little things, like at, at conferences, I would do a little workshop or a tutorial, and I started a little online tutorial, and that kind of spiraled out of control into into the book that um, that you mentioned, which probably, I, I mean, I originally we had the title Test-Driven Web Development with Python because it's so focused on web development. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably an apt uh, interview start. Yeah, okay, that's good. The um, So... You've given this talk, that presentation, or the tutorial and presentations around that. Um, how many times now have you kept track? <laughs> no, I haven't kept track. No, I mean, I guess I started maybe in in uh, twenty eleven, twenty twelve, something like that, with a thing called TDD Django tutorial, and the idea was to uh, take the official Django tutorial and just you know run through it, but do TDD instead. So. The Django tutorial says, oh, you know, you should open up the uh, start uh, some polls, models and stuff and open up the admin site and you'll see it. And I said, well, no, let's let's write a test first that you can open the admin site. Um, and that was like just a, a fun concept. And I turned that into a tutorial and then then it, it turned into a book. And that was, yeah, so 2012, you know, three or four conferences a year. You know, it, it must be, uh, you know, 15, 15, 20 times by now, maybe only a dozen. I don't know, perhaps I'm exaggerating. 
anyway, it's uh, it's it's still fun, um, but it was just starting to maybe get a little stale. So I've been uh, I've been starting to think about whether I could do an intermediate level tutorial instead, and I'm starting to sketch out something about that, which would be about kind of more intermediate concept. Maybe we could talk about you know what is outside in TDD? How's that different from inside out as a methodological approach? And and what's this whole idea of uh, kind of um, uh, purist sort of unit tests? So you know like uh, uh, um, uh, what you'd call isolated tests where you make sure that each layer of test is isolated from the others, often using mocks and, you know, what are the pros and cons of that and with a, with a worked example, which is basically the plot to the chapters 16 and 17 in the book. Uh, okay, great. Um, I can't wait till I get there. Um, I, for, uh, I guess I haven't presented this on my, on my blog or, or podcast before, but, um, but I've, I've read, uh, the, the book, um, I'm on my second time and I'm now learning Django because I'm not a Django developer. Um, so are you familiar with, uh, other frameworks like flask and stuff, or are you mostly Django ish person? Uh, I, 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 most of my hardcore experience, I guess is with Django. I'm familiar with them because at, at, um, Python anywhere, which is the company that resolve systems eventually morphed into, um, where we run a, a kind of a platform as a service. Uh, a lot of our users, are, well, most of our users, I guess, are hosting web apps, and we host uh, all sorts of Python web web frameworks, and that's Django, but also things like Flask and Web2Py and uh, Bottle and things like that. So we had to become familiar with them because so many of our customers were using them, and so just get at least the, the basics of it. So I've built a, a few small apps in Flask, and I've helped some of our users build them as well. And so I know some of the the basics of it. Yeah. So for the 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 purpose of um, testing, is testing a um really any web framework similar to, I mean, is testing Flask similar to testing Django or and Bottle mm-hmm. and whatnot? It is up to a point, although because Django's been around for quite a long time, they've built out quite a lot more tools around there. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, Django's got is a is a macro framework, it's a big framework. It it tries to do and give you lots of tools to do stuff and and, and some of those are with testing tools. So uh uh where Whereas with Flask, there are a few testing tools, but you probably have to, to roll your own a lot. So in Django, there are only little things, there are only little helpers. It's nothing you can't build on your own, but Django does have its kind of official solution and, and it suggests you use it. So for testing a Django app, there's a, a version of Django that will spin up a little Django server uh, for you called Live Server Test Case. Whereas if you're using Flask, maybe you'd want to, you know, okay, uh, in your test, set up a thing that runs Flask first and then runs your test or whatever. Um, so that's that's the answer I think is there's a there's a few more built-in tools in Django and you know that's like any framework you know sometimes that's great and then sometimes actually what you need is not exactly what the Django developers anticipated so you end up rolling your own anyway um, so that's not um, you know not necessarily a real uh, reason to use Django but I found they work pretty well as examples in the book okay well I know that the book uh, focuses on the unit test portion um, unit test the tool not unit testing. Um, mm-hmm. but the, um, but I know that you've, uh, played with PyTest a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, how, uh, is one better or worse than the other or just different for testing, um, web applications? Yeah, I don't know. It might be a little bit like, a, like anything like a, a fad or a novelty. Um, but I feel like about a year and a half ago, maybe, I heard more and more people talking about PyTest saying, you know, we've looked at nodes, we've looked at unit tests, we've looked at PyTest, and the one we prefer is PyTest. It's the most fun. It's the most, um, uh, and, you know, like, so why did they say that? Some of the reasons are uh, that it lets you do, uh, you know, write your tests using just the assert keyword. 
um, rather than in, in unit tests having to remember, you know, self.assert equals, self.assert true, self.assert regex matches, self.assert greater than, all of these things. Um, the, the PyTest philosophy is if you just write assert A is less than B, then PyTest should be smart enough to know, okay, well, look, you were doing a less than comparison. So when I need to report your errors, I can inspect those two variables and tell you, you know, A was not less than B. Um, so, so you know, achieves the same result, which is that you know, when you make your assertions, you can you know uh, compare or tell you how, in what way the test fails, but it does so using a bit less boilerplate. So people like that, and then uh, uh, some of the the arguments against it, particularly from my colleagues, hi Giles, hi Glenn, um, uh, uh, is that Pytest's approach to fixtures by by which Pytest me, and so there can be a confusion here because in in the Django world, the word fixtures tends to mean some data that you want to put in your database before you start your test. Whereas in the PyTest world, a fixture is a slightly more general word, and it means anything that you need to set up before running your test. Um, and in the, in the unit test world, what that means is stuff that you would normally do in the setup method. Um, so in the unit test world, we have your, you know, your setup and your teardown methods that run before and after each test, and then your tests or anything, any method begins with test underscore. Well, in PyTest... Uh, it's slightly different. You write a function that's going to be your test fixture, uh, and then you put that function somewhere special, and then in your test function, if one of your arguments' names matches the function name, PyTest sort of magically uh, injects that fixture in as a, as a dependency. And so a common complaint is that that's too much like voodoo, that's too much like magic. And I think that's, you know, up to a point, that's a fair criticism, but then again, you know, if you're used to unit test, which is based on the sort of Java uh, unit testing frameworks, the JUnit philosophy, then you're like, right, fine, obviously I have a setup and a teardown and, and test underscore methods in my class, but actually that's magic too. You've got no idea how that works. If you ever have a look at the source code of unit test in the Python source tree, you'll see that it's incredibly complicated. Actually getting a test runner to work uh, is not straightforward. And so it's just, it's a, maybe it's a different type of magic, okay? So magic over here is setup runs, then your test runs, then teardown runs. And the magic over there is um, you name your tests, and then the uh, names of the arguments in your test functions match the name of these fixture functions, which is what's going to get run, what's going to get injected into your test at the time. Yeah, did that make any sense? I feel like I, I, I'm a little bit rambly this evening. No, I, I think um, I'm, I'm 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 letting you run with this because um, I mean I w- was interest. It was interesting to me to find out that the fixtures has a different meaning. I have run across that people saying that thinking that when I'm talking about fixtures, I'm just talking about data, um, which mm-hmm. has always confused me because I'm I come from the an instrument test world where fixtures are actual physical fixtures um, or um, you know, I'm setting up a signal or something like that. Um, oh, uh, what, are, what do you mean, like physical fixtures? Well, right. So um, if I'm uh, in uh, electronic testing, uh, the setup methods might actually go out and, um, um, you know, set up a switch matrix and and get a signal from one place to a, the antenna that I'm test for the device I'm testing on. Wow. Things like that. So. Actually, yeah, that does sound a lot more physical. Yeah, I wonder why the, it's the, the word fixtures like that. Whether um, you know, it does sound a little bit like you're going to bolt something to a desk before you're going to test it. Like it's from a real, uh, real sort of real life uh, woodworking testing, <laughs> physical engineering kind of lab thing, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it, in the uh, electronic world, it it translates fairly 
readily. Um, the notion of just having data, I, uh, that confused me. I couldn't figure out how that would translate to fixture. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think maybe overall it's Django that is slightly misusing the term or, or giving the impression that the term is more specific than it actually is. So for some of your colleagues that uh, don't like the fixture uh, model, you could remind them that PyTest supports uh, XUnit style fixtures just as well. It still supports setup and teardown. So, I, I guess so, yeah. So, that, so that's, that's true. Um, but I guess what they're saying is, hey, look, if the whole PyTest philosophy is to use these magic fixtures, well, we think they're too magic. And, uh, and I think that's, that's partially, partially a fair criticism, and then partially it's, it's from lack of familiarity. The more you use them, the more you, you sort of appreciate them and they feel natural. Uh, it's like anything. So, you know, like, uh, like any technological decision, we, we try and make these decisions based on sort of rational bases, but there's a part of you that's just jumping on the bandwagon. And, you know, it, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. I'm having quite a bit of fun jumping on the PyTest bandwagon. Yeah, actually, and I also think it's sort of funny hearing that argument coming from people that are already on the Python and the Django bandwagon. Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. and they're kind of magical as well. <laughs> right. Uh, um, but well, um, right. okay. yeah, all right. So that's um, uh, the the frameworks. Um, so how about like the different levels of testing? Can you use Python for um, for? Is it just through Selenium, or um, can you go? Is it full stack? How the, how much of the pyramid can you use unit test and right. PyTest for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've I've used. Uh, PyTest for, for I guess so when you say the pyramid you mean you know can you use it for end-to-end tests functional tests as well as for sort of unit tests uh, and I think the answer is yeah absolutely just like you can use the, the um, standard libraries unit test module for functional tests you can use PyTest for functional tests and um, in uh, in the couple of blog posts I've written where we we were talking about PyTest, they've both been for quite uh, high-level tests, sort of functional tests. Um, the first one was about a um, we were building a kind of Postgres service, which is based on um, uh, you know you spin up some little Docker containers, and each user is going to have their own Docker container, and that Docker container is going to be running Postgres, and then you're going to we're building a little uh, uh, actually Flask based API around that whose job it is to start and stop those Docker containers and provision new Postgres servers for users. Um, and, the, and the tests that we wrote for that were ultimately use the request library, ping a Flask, you know, ping a URL where we expect Flask to be running. So the, the tests assume that Flask is actually running on the machine they're running on. Um, and then uh, the next step in the test after calling request.post or whatever is open up... Um, uh, the, what's the, the stupid name of the Python Postgres library? It's really impossible to remember. Um, P, uh, po, post PG, something, something silly. Anyway, open that up uh, and actually make a database connection to, uh, you know, the, the API has told you try this port um, to a hostname and a port and see if it's actually running there. So that's, that's very much an end-to-end test. You know, we make an actual HTTP request and then we make an actual database connection and see if Postgres is waiting on the other side. Uh, and in between that sort of input and output, um, you know, I've talked to a Flask. Uh, uh, I've talked to actually, I think even Nginx, which is uh, reverse proxied to Flask. Flask is called out through the uh, Docker Python uh, API through to Docker, which has started up an actual uh, Docker container and then started up Postgres. And Postgres is bound to a port, and that is now listening. Um, and so you've got like that. That is about as full a stack as uh, as I can imagine. Um, 
And yeah, that's the, you can absolutely write a test for that in PyTest and quite nicely too. So when, um, and then, so those are, yeah, definitely full system tests. Um, when the, uh, um, I, I can't remember the name of the term. So inside of a, a Django project, there's um, like mini projects or like mm-hmm. sub. Uh, what do you call them? Projects and apps. Yeah, apps. All apps. right. So, mm-hmm. so the test directory within an app um, is, is that, would that be, is that a unit test at that point or? Uh, yeah. Well, so I talk a little bit about that. How, so w- where do you put your functional tests in a, in a Django project structure? And I mentioned that I think in uh, maybe in chapter six in the book. Um, and so the idea is that, so Django kind of goes, encourages you to do testing and it, it puts a file called test.py inside each one of your apps. So you've got a project, the project contains many, many apps uh, and each one of the apps has a, as a tests file. Uh, and the apps might be things like accounts, uh, forums, uh, um, I don't know, uh, API, whatever, like sort of different components of your uh, of your um, whole project. Um, and my philosophy is that for unit tests, it makes a lot of sense to keep your tests inside the app because the you know the tests are about testing the code, and each app is reasonably self-contained, so you probably have a self-contained set of unit tests in there. Uh, and then for your functional tests, I think you could go either way, but overall, my f- feeling is, is that a, a functional test, a sort of high-level test, is really testing the whole project from the point of view of the user. Uh, and your user doesn't care that you've split up your code into nice little self-contained apps because all they're seeing is a, is a website. So I feel like the functional tests are probably separate from that structure. Um, and, you know, one functional test might actually use several different apps. You know, you might, you know, use the accounts module to log in and then you might need to use the billing module to pay for something and you might need to use the whatever. Um, so that's that's an argument for having at least some of your functional tests kind of separate from the the Django apps structure. Well, that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. so you've got, um, and then uh, is there are there other levels of testing that you're doing on a on an application or on a project? Um, yeah, so I think that I think there are, and they, well, there can be, um, and I think it depends on the level of complexity of your project. So. Uh, uh, I, you know, for, for web projects of the, the kind that involve a reasonably rich front end, um, I tend to recommend you have at least some tests that use Selenium that really test the kind of the full stack, I guess, that really test that a real web browser can come up, visit your site, click on things, and that then there's a web server at the other end that's responding to those requests and, you know, showing the right information to the user. Um, and then at the other end, you know, you, you kind of need some 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 lower level tests and, and Django gives you this thing called the Django test client, which is actually encouraging you to kind of write a sort of half halfway down the, the pyramid kind of test where it spins up a more or less, you know, realistic version of the, of the uh, uh, Django f- framework. And you can test it with a thing called self dot client that can do dot get and dot post. Um, and I think that's quite good. That gives you quite a, a sort of reasonable kind of middle level of tests. And I think for a project that's, not too complex. Um, that's a pretty good balance of, of types of tests. And so Django, you know, so you, you write your Selenium tests, and there they are with a real web server, and a real database. Uh, and you write your Django tests, and they also use the database, but they're going to, you know, maybe use the SQLite in-memory database, and so it's a bit faster. Um, and you know, you can you can sort of test your application in a way that's that's reasonably um, pragmatic, and and it lets you test your models and test your views and test that responses come back all, all right, and that it, the site really works from the point of view of the user. I think after a while, if you if you really grow in complexity, you you maybe start to want to take those kind of 
um, slightly mushy Django test that tests at multiple levels. And you want to start to think about actually having one layer of kind of end-to-end tests, one layer of kind of integration tests that check that things are kind of glued together okay at a, at a sort of intermediate level, and, a, and then a lower level of, of unit tests that maybe um, don't use quite so much of the Django middleware stack or that maybe avoid using the database. Um, and... Uh, I, I, you know, I've never worked on a project where that architecture is perfectly realized. Um, but I think that's when you start to have an application that's, that's so complicated that you want to try and abstract a core of business logic actually out of, out of Django. And so you want to have some, some core of your application that, that doesn't depend on Django or that only talks to Django at the very end when it wants to save from the database or retrieve from the database. And the business logic is reasonably self-contained. And you could write some, some uh, really focused unit tests in there that are um, very much what you'd call uh, isolated tests. Yeah. Um, is, is it a good time to talk about kind of uh, test isolation and things like that? As it turns out, it actually wasn't that good of a time to continue our discussion about test isolation. Harry had a pizza delivery. I needed to go back to work. It was my lunch hour when I was doing this interview. And the audio quality just sort of decred out on me. So it turned out to be a good thing. We decided to pick up the conversation two days later. And so now here's the rest of the conversation. I think we covered um, like PyTest versus no, or not nose, PyTest versus unit test pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. And the different levels of testing. And we were going to pick it up with, um, with test isolation. And then... Mm. I would also, so I'd like to talk a little bit about, I'd like to talk about test isolation, but I was hoping to um, also talk about a couple other topics, like uh, whether or not you use external QA and to make sure we get, get to talk about the process of your book a little bit. So, Oh, sure. Um, so yeah. what, um, I haven't got that far in your book, but I have, uh, I guess, um, some personal thoughts uh well at least in my in my field uh isolating tests is a is both a good thing and a bad thing so um Mm. when you when you were uh, mentioning test isolation what what is how how much do you use and what is that yeah yeah i guess so test isolation i guess it's it's uh i I think of it sometimes like a, a little bit of a platonic ideal so we have our functional tests that we're pretty happy with where you know, we're really testing the application from end to end. And when we have a functional test that passes, we're pretty sure we've really got a working application. And the kind of other end of the testing scale is that we want to have unit tests. And, and what does that mean? It means that you want to test a specific unit of code. Um, and typically that's going to mean uh, like one function or one method on a class. Um, and that, fun- I mean, if you're, you're, you're uh, keeping to sort of good coding practices, these functions are quite small. You know, they're three, four, five, 10, 15 lines. Um, and your unit tests are trying to, you know, sort of designed to kind of isolate down to just that function or just that method and help you get it right. Um, and uh, and and I think, you know, sometimes it, and so to 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 have a really good unit test, you want to test just that function, and you don't want that test to fail for reasons that aren't to do with the logic of that function. And so that's why we try and isolate it. So if that function happens to want to talk to a database or talk to the internet or talk to a hard disk um, we don't want our test to fail I mean in the, in the theory we don't want our test to fail because the database is misbehaving or because the hard disk is misbehaving we want to sort of isolate it from that and just test the core logic 
And so that's when you get into things like mocking or, you know, the, the alternative to mocking is to try and, you know, make it so that your functions don't contain anything to do with the database or the file system or whatever and take, you know, abstract out the core of your business logic from your interfaces to uh, the outside world, your interfaces to the internet or to the disk or to the to the database. Um, and so those are your two approaches. Either, you know, your functions involve databases, whatever, so I mock it out, or uh, I'm going to try and extract a kind of functional core of my application that's, that's not going to have any dependencies. And then I can test it with a very clean unit test that just goes sort of data in, data out. Um, and I think the thing about that ideal is it's it's uh, it's really good when you're trying to develop uh, some sort of complex algorithms. You know, if you're trying to build a um, the the example that jumps to mind is a parser because that's what I've worked on in, when we were at Resolver One. So you're trying to make a um, a thing that translate Excel dialect into um, working Python code, uh, and it's it's very much a tool that takes sort of data in one end and puts data out the other end, and it doesn't have any dependencies and it's just logic. It's breaking down things into characters, identifying relationships between them, and it has a logic for building a you know a tree structure, a parse tree in this case. Um, or if you need an algorithm for, you know, take jobs off a queue and take, uh, you know, as many as you need, uh, but only the high priority ones. And so you're trying to build an algorithm that's going to have sort of particular behaviors. I think these ideas of sort of very pure unit tests are, um, are the, the perfect way of testing those. Um, and so a lot of uh, TDD um, uh, literature out there will tell you about th this kind of testing. And I think that sometimes clashes with the, the real experience of, um, of web developers, which is what I am, um, because we're sort of looking around at our applications, and our applications are essentially just thin wrappers around a database. I mean, as often as not, when you, you build a web application, it's just a database with a web front end. And you're going, you know what? I, I don't have an awful lot of business logic to abstract out of this. All I really want to do is take the user's input, save it to the database, and tell them that's done. Or when they ask me for something, I'm going to go and query the database and show them the results in a pretty way. And, you know... Really, that there is no business logic for me to abstract out, so I don't see where I'm going to write these unit tests. And in the meantime, putting in all the effort to do that, uh, you know, I, I just want to get work done. And, and, and so Django's philosophy of, of um, you know, the, the framework for perfectionists with deadlines um, is about saying, okay, well, look, you know, the, the, the simplest way to build a thin a simple kind of database-driven application is we have uh, a view function which interfaces with the internet by producing kind of HTML, and it interfaces with um, the database by using the sort of models objects. And the best way to test that is to use an actual database and look at the actual HTML that comes out and maybe even do a real request to it so you can test your kind of URL routing and your database and your HTML all in one go. Um, and that's the tool that the Django developers gave us, and they're not, they're not stupid. They built the tool they figured would be, you know, that they wanted that they figured was the most useful for testing the kind of applications that get built with that. Um, it does. It looks pretty, um, my, my limited access to it so far, it, it is an interesting and very useful part, uh, place to slice the, uh, the application in half. I, I, would I think say. that's it. But the, you know, the danger is that, you know, that's fine at first for a simple application, but as it grows, you know, you get more and more tests, they get slower and, kidding yourself at some point that you haven't got any business logic and maybe if you did put in the effort to kind of try and abstract it out you might be able to understand your, your code better and have a nicer architecture but uh, I think that's still even in my mind that's still quite theoretical yeah I, th I think of it as, as unrealistically theoretical I, I in um, I'm, I'm not a web developer I do, I do embedded systems and the it's the the um, 
the notion that you can really always have, I mean, that I've got event driven, it's an event driven system. You've got access to the hardware. I really want to test the whole thing. Um, splitting things up and mocking stuff. Uh, the, the pure algorithm parts just, they're not where my bugs usually are. Um, uh-huh. the bugs are usually in putting things together wrong, um, yeah. or misunderstandings of interfaces or, um, you know, just, um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions in the system. There's a lot of assumptions with, us, uh, especially with teams that are large. Um, you, you don't write everything down correctly. Um, and, or you use a third party library and it's not, you're not quite using it right. Or you're using it a little bit out of, out of the, uh, the, the mm. normal workflow. Um, yeah. and, and, um, those are the hard parts to, those are the real bugs. Um, I've never, I, the, there's also the, one of the things about the ideal of the ideal of, uh, isolated function test. Um, they, there's this notion that if you, if a test fails, you want that functionality to be the, like if, if a functionality breaks, you only want that test to break. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. The perfect world is like one test fails and you're like, right, that points me exactly at one line of code to fix. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think that sort of ignores the rest of the development art, um, system. So, um, if I have a bunch of tests that fail, I'm pretty sure that the code I just added might be the stuff or the, the code that was added since the last time everything passed. That's probably mm-hmm. where the bug is. Um, right. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. We also have, you know, we also have revision control systems and um, continuous integration servers to help um, isolate where the problems are as well. Um, yeah. So, and the, true. I saw, um, I saw a tweet, I think, or just a little, little wittiness uh, by someone saying, you know, the, the tests that give us, uh, you know, green functional tests are what give us confidence their application works, but a red unit test is the most useful thing for debugging, which I think. Uh, kind of captures that idea that you know a unit test is pointing at a very specific problem, um, but you know what I, I tend to find that my unit tests just don't fail very much. Once I've written them, uh, I, I you know that's pretty much there and it's fine. The tests that fail are the functional tests and they're the ones that are actually hard to fix and uh, and that's because our software is difficult. And I also have to say that you know my perspective is my perspective and I work at a company called Python Anywhere and what we do is. You know, we, we build a web application, but that web application builds other web applications and it builds Docker containers and it talks to several databases and we spin up processes on the disk and we move them from server to server. And, you know, our, our application is all boundaries and talking from system to system and it's all integration points. Um, so obviously, I, I'm going to be talking a lot about how the most useful tests for me are, are, are integration type tests. Um, and other people might have a different experience. It, it sounds like you're saying, yeah, it's, it's similar for you, but you know, the, the pure logic algorithm types of tests just aren't um, that big of a part of what you have to do every day. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I um, I only could think of um, one person I know that, um, or one team of people that in that have to deal with just pure algorithmic sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, these are like DSP um, uh, signal processing oh. where, you, I mean, you really have like fixed, but then at the, at the same time they can, so they, there is a, okay. Um, I, I want to back up a little bit. The, there is definitely a case for being, uh, mocking and stubbing information so that you control the situation. Um, so you, mm-hmm. you, you can like, um, you say, well, I, I, I need to know when, 
if I add a user and that user ID is still is already there, um, well, then I have to kind of mock up a database where that is going to be the case. Mm. Um, so the other the other thing I think that that arguments of isolation um, fall down is just um, I don't think people are utilizing fixtures enough or setup and teardown because if if you ha- if you push all that database stuff into the, your fixtures, your test isn't going to fail. It's going to error, um, and that'll be different. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe hard to debug too. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, I really wanted to just give a little name check to uh, Gary Bernhardt, who's a wise, wise uh, sage in the TDD world, and he's he's looked into this stuff for much longer than I have, and he's got a couple of excellent talks on this subject. The talks are called Boundaries, and then there's a follow up called Functional Core Imperative Shell. And so anyone that's interested in this sort of stuff, I really encourage them to go and have a look at, at those two talks. I think they're PyCon talks from around 2013. 2012, boundaries, 2013. And boundaries and what was the other one? And the other one is called Functional Core Imperative Shell. I will have uh, to check and, those out. Um, now yeah. I'm going to try to get off this bandwagon or this uh, soapbox hey, hey. because I'm a little passionate about it. Um, so uh, shift gears a little bit. Um, you, do you, you have a fairly complicated system, it sounds like. Do you have an external QA team, or does your do your developers do all of the testing? Yeah, no, it's just us. I mean, there are four people that work at Python anywhere, and so we we are the uh, and we 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 are the testers and we are the developers. So we follow uh, uh, extreme programming methodology. We we now have short iterations. Um, we work on features one by one, and we do them in a test driven way. We write a, a functional test first, a unit test second, and the code third, uh, and that's it. We have a continuous integration build telling us when we accidentally broke other stuff. We rotate around, we do everything in pair programming. So we're the testers, and the only other testers are, uh, are the poor users, I'm afraid, who, uh, who will come along and, and uh, tell us if we've accidentally coded any bugs, or tell us when the performance isn't up to scratch, which is another difficult thing. So the, um, your, your addition to the, um, to the normal TDD cycle of adding the, uh, a functional test first um, mm-hmm. does that enable you to not, um, does, so does all of your testing fall into that cycle or do you have, um, some tests that need to be written outside of the TDD cycle? Um, I don't know if we have any tests. I mean, we, we tend to always go for that philosophy of functional test first and then unit tests, you know, to, to build the code that's going to make that functional test pass. And then that's, we call that double loop TDD. There's sort of a loop of functional tests and smaller loops of, of unit tests and coding inside. Um, outside of that, I mean, the, the thing we do do sometimes is we are trying to build new technologies. So we do go off and occasionally one of us will pick up a, an investigation of a new technology uh, and they might do that without tests. So my colleague Glenn went off and tried to figure out how we could integrate IPython notebooks uh, onto the onto the service. Uh, um, Thankfully, as so often in the world of open source, somebody had done all the hard work already. So uh, a huge big up to the people behind JupyterHub, oh, yeah. um, which we've integrated recently. Uh, and, you know, so they'll go and learn that technology and do that sort of outside some tests. And that's a sort of spike task. And then they'll come back and go, OK, well, let's de-spike this. Let's take my prototype and, and rebuild it as a kind of production ready thing. And that we will do once again with functional tests. Uh, uh, unit tests, but sometimes you don't know what tests, you know, what, what are your tests going to look like until you've built that prototype, until you've understood that technology that you're integrating. So that definitely does happen. Well, cool. Well, we've uh, covered a bunch of topics, and I've, I know I'm going to, um, I know once I finish the uh, the 
your book, I'm going to come up with probably several more questions along the way um, that hopefully I can throw at you. Um, but the, um, and we also flew by um, uh, a bunch of uh, topics that maybe we glossed over a little too quickly. Um, right. I'm, uh, I hope that uh, anybody listening to this can uh, let us know if mm-hmm. uh, we need to cover something in, in more depth and we'll try mm-hmm. to follow up with that. Um, mm-hmm. But on a personal, now this is a, per, a personal note. Um, I do, I do try to make a little money on the side from selling my own uh, uh, Python uh, testing framework book. Um, so mm-hmm. um, I do know that experience of doing it all by myself. Um, but um, you're, I, I was, I asked you briefly the other day, but we, I wasn't recording at the time about, um, about uh, your process with uh, O'Reilly and having it open source and, mm. or not open source, but um, the book is just freely readable on the web. Um, yeah. Right. So yeah. I, I wanted yeah, yeah, to yeah. just touch on that a little bit. How is that? Do you, do you feel that's a good model? Are you happy with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's worked very well for me. It was it was important to me, I guess, because I wanted to, um, you know, we work in a in a world of free software. Python is free software. GNU Linux is free software, um, uh, open source, and you know we get all this stuff for free. And and so we we you know I, I think there's a, a a moral imperative on us to try and give back, and and different people do that in different ways. And one of the ways you can do it, well, I felt that I could do it is if I'm going to write a book, let me make sure that there is also you know that it is also free. Um, uh, if people need it. Um, and the great thing about that, so I spoke to, uh, it was another publisher that, that approached me at first and said, Hey, do you want to write this book? And I went, yes. And I went, <clears throat> listen, I'd write to release it on the creative commons. And they went, well, no, can't give it away for free, which is a wonderful attitude from the 1980s. And, uh, and you know, it's some people, you know, you, you have this illusion or uh, of thinking, you know, I can't give my way my, my book away for free. Then, then people will be sitting there with this choice between a a paid for version and a free version. And so that's right. You you think, okay, hey, I can't be giving people. I, I, you know, it's um this choice between a paid version and a free version. Um, I don't want that. I want the only thing out there to be the paid version. But of course, that's not the world we live in anymore. The moment you've released a book, uh, it, the, it's going to be outline online and available in pirate copies as soon as you start. Even if you're like, you know what, I'm only going to release the physical book, and that way, you know, people won't be able to get a hold of a PDF, which is too easy to copy. Uh, if you're if you're so determined that you're going to cut off all the ebook market and say, no, no, it's just going to be a physical book. There's a company. I mean, you can you can send books to be scanned. I saw a company that was doing it for uh, five dollars per hundred pages. You send them a book, and for every hundred pages, they charge you five dollars. They'll send you back a PDF of it, and they just do it by slicing down the back of the book binder and putting it through an industrial scanner. So <laughs> it is so. I mean, it is it is so cheap to 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 make digital copies of things and distribute them. The, the, there is no such thing as a as a choice between uh, you know having a paid edition or and a free edition. It's like either you have a paid edition and a free edition that you've authorized and that you've said people you're happy for people to read or it's a paid edition plus the pirate edition that you're making people break the law if they want to read your book for free uh, and so honestly i'd rather just say you know what if you really want to read the book for free here it is for free and then i think that that, that then rather than having put yourself in a kind of adversarial relationship with your readers because there are some people who maybe they can't afford it or maybe they really want to try before they buy you know they want to just have a look first 
those people, if you force them to break the law first, you know, you've, you've immediately gone into a confrontational relationship with them. Whereas if you say instead, hey, okay, here's the book for free, read away, and you're just upfront about it and you say, hey, this is, this is a try before you buy kind of scheme. If you like this book, I hope you'll consider buying a copy. And I say, I say pretty much this in the foreword. I say, if you like this book and you're reading the free version, I hope you'll buy it a copy even if it's not for yourself maybe buy it for a friend or buy it for your local library or your local hackerspace or, or whatever it is um, and this is where you can buy it and and whatnot and i think i think that works really well o'reilly are totally on board with it um it, it is the modern way i think of 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 uh of evolving in this sort of space and maybe we're lucky i guess as as tech publishers that you know, like uh, it might be a different equation if I was Stephen King writing kind of beach beach reading novels or, or airport novels. But um, when someone's reading a book like mine, they're reading it for very specific reasons to do with their career. You don't read a book called Test Driven Development with Python uh, on the beach. Or if you do, it's because, you know, you're trying to learn something to go back and do differently uh, when you when you finish your holiday. So it's it's a uh, it's it's already a commercial transaction. People see a very clear link between reading that book and their job and getting paid and money. So I think if they're reading the free version, they're getting something out of it. It's much easier for them to make that moral jump to, oh, maybe I should pay for this. Whereas I don't know if if you're reading Stephen King's book, you know you, you might be thinking, wow, it's just a holiday book. I, I don't. This isn't a commercial thing. This is just I don't know. Uh, that's yeah. I, I also can't um, expense report my uh, Stephen King novel, so. <laughs> right. Um, so that's it. And, and, and so that's that. So I think people will, will pay for it. And the other thing that's great about it is it means there's all sorts of people who could never pay for it. Um, so there's like people who just like kids and students who are just too broke to buy this sort of thing. There's people out in the developing world who like, you know, like there's no local publisher making an edition for them. And you know, uh, whatever it is, like $30 for a book might not be too much for us, but to some people that's like a month's salary. So like, obviously they're not going to pay that. Or I, I had people from uh, Iran talk to me and say, well, hey, I'd love to buy this book, but the US export controls means that, you know, we can't. They just, they, they, they're not allowed to buy American books here. Weird. So for okay. all those people, yeah, that's a real thing. Um, so for all those people, you know, okay, I'd rather they were able to read the book than, than not. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe that the trade sanctions will be lifted or, uh, you know, someday they'll come back and buy somebody else's book. So we'll pay it forwards. Okay. Well, I, I, um, actually I'm, I'm learning quite a bit from it, so I appreciate you writing it. And, um, um, my personally, um, I, I started out reading the first read I read through it was on a Kindle and, uh, oh, yeah. and then, um, I'm reading the physical copy now and I don't know what's different about it, but I can it's just, it is different. I can, I can do the exercises and go through it quickly with the physical book way easier than the Kindle. And it shouldn't be it's the much, case. It's, yeah. It's, it's much easier to flick through a physical book. Like there's a, um, you know, flicking through the pages is much easier than trying to like fiddle with a Kindle's crappy UI to jump through it. And secondly, you have this real sort of, um, like with monkeys, you know, uh, uh, so, flicking through a book and having a kind of like three-dimensional tactile feeling of like how far through it you are so that you remember oh i saw that thing it was about ooh, half an inch of the way through the book you know you can flick to it in a much more instinctive way than kind of going oh um now what was that about 18 percent uh, <laughs> like amazon kindle mark 300 out of 5738 you know like forget it <laughs> yeah so so now i'm i'm feeling a little guilty that my book's only in uh in 
ebook form. So um, I'll have to do something about that. Um, Look, I don't want to take up more of your time, but I, uh, I do want to really thank you a ton for being the first interview on the the podcast um, and uh, taking your time to talk with me. Oh no. Hey, you're very welcome, Brian. It's been my absolute pleasure. I'm flattered to be asked, honestly. And uh, I hope that, um, I hope everybody enjoys this and I hope it, uh, in actually I've had a, a really good time. It's a, it's, um, it's actually quite a bit easier to interview somebody than to come up with a half an hour's worth of content on your own. So, uh, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, hopefully I'll talk with you later and, uh, we'll stay in touch. Um, thanks a lot. All right. Goodbye, All right. Brian. Goodbye, everyone. Good night. Good night. I'll put a link to Harry's book on the show notes. That's at pythontesting.net slash nine. I think we're at nine now. And you can find all of the show notes at pythontesting.net slash podcast. So huge thank you to Harry for being my first interview. And um, I think that about wraps it up. I'm way over time. I hope you enjoyed it. Please let me know um, either through the comments or uh, through Twitter at Brian Aachen or at test podcast. Let me know what you think of the interview and tell me who you would like me to interview more of. I'm not going to do all interviews. I still want to get, give you information in shorter episodes, but I do like uh, interviewing people. This is quite a bit of quite a good time. So um, give me, give me some feedback. To let me know who, who I should interview next. Thanks. And uh, have a great day. Keep on testing.